Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Prestige, a podcast about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we'll focus on a particular movie chosen by one of us and then let a theme develop out from a review slash discussion about that and see where it takes us. And we'll still, as always, end with some recommendations based on this week's choice, based on the, the ideas presented this week. But to start with, we're going to introduce ourselves. So Sam, who are we? My name's Sam Knowles, I'm a teacher and writer and my latest article... It's about graphic novel form and Mediterranean migration, which is is as uplifting as it sounds. Um, came out this summer, and my first book, okay, my only book, but first book sounds more impressive, um, is Travel Writing the Transnational Author, which was um, out with Palgrave last year. And my companion on this cinematic adventure... Um, is pop culture's answer to Stephen Fry, a renaissance man <laughs> of messing about with photos, books and videos, um, Rob Macon, as well as um, a quite staggering number of current creative projects. Rob spent several years in the film industry, has a degree in film, so generally knows what he's talking about. I, I know films. And I also, I have read Sam's book, and whilst it uses a lot of big words that I didn't understand, it was very good. <laughs> Well, good. Thank you for that. It's all right. Put that on the cover next time. <laughs> That's a review now. <laughs> right. So this this week is uh, your choice of film. It is. So this week we watched Ant Man, the latest release from the Marvel world, the Marvel universe, starring Paul Rudd and Michael Douglas, directed by Peyton Reed, and it's tell, it tells the story of of Scott Lang, a uh, ex con cat burglar who gets caught up in really corporate espionage between Hank Pym, an inventor, and Darren Cross, his protégé-turned-replacement-turned-super-villain, essentially. Ant-Man has the ability to turn really small and control ants, but this film isn't really about his superpowers, it's kind of about the, the, the family dynamics of, of the Pyms, he's part of that, and sort of the, the culmination is to try and stop Darren Cross from making his own version of the Ant-Man suit to then sell on to Hydra, who are the sort of the big baddies of Phase 2, of Phase 1 slash Phase 2 of, of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Sam, your thoughts on the film? I really enjoyed it. I think, not sure it was as much as any of the Marvel films. I, I certainly enjoyed Guns of the Galaxy a lot. But I did enjoy this, and some of the things that I enjoyed about this were the sort of um, self-deprecation and the referentiality that you got with Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, And the fact that it's not afraid not to take itself seriously, Um, which has been been a problem with other, not necessarily Marvel films, but other comic book films. and you have comic set pieces like uh, the the sort of the, the preparation scene when they're going through their roles in the heist, um, and you have the the comic character who, uh, Paul Rudd interacts with the security guard Louise, um, and then you have nice movements from pathos into humour, like with. Hank Pym and his his estranged daughter, 
and they have a touching reunion moment and then Paul Rudd comments on what a touching reunion moment it is and and thereby ruins it and then says to them, I ruined that, didn't I? So it's not afraid to not only have a bit of a laugh at its at itself, but also acknowledge that it is laughing at itself. So I really enjoyed it. I I would agree. I I, I really did enjoy this. I went into it with quite low expectations because the original director of of the film was uh, Edgar Wright, infamous from Space Days, Major on the Dead, Hot Fuzz, Scott Pilgrim. Who I'm a big fan of his his direction style, and he left the project uh, under creative differences. Right. And was replaced by Peyton Reed. And that kind of... I went into it with a bit of a sour taste in my mouth from that because I really like mm. him. And it's kind of like, well, if one of the directors had been pulled off it, what's it going to end up being like? But I really did enjoy it. I did, I did still see some of his handiwork in there. And certain, as you said, comic beats that were very... That kind of humour, very, very space-style sort of humour of uh, undercutting the moment... Mm. and being aware of the, the trope that's being portrayed at the same time. That's interesting. So at what stage did he leave it? I would say before, well before production. Mm. Uh, they were still still in the scripting phase, I believe, when he left it. Basically, I think the, the, the argument came down to is that the, the Marvel Universe has a certain style to it. Mm. Uh, and yes, they play with that with things like this and Guardians, which are more kind of... I mean, Guardians, but it's a space opera. And you've got Captain America 2, which is more of a political thriller but they all exist within the same continuity, the same sort of visual style. Um, mm. And I think that Edgar Wright's film in that style, in that world would have been a very much a standout, standout sort of film. And I think it was kind of, this isn't going to, it isn't going to work. That being said, I believe he was still involved in writing it. Joe Cornish was involved in writing it. Joe Cornish as in Attack the Block? Yes. Right. And so it, there is some pedigree still involved. And I think there was, I can still see some moments that were still Edgar Wright infused, shall we say. Mm. I think Paul Rudd was great. I've got a lot of time for him as an actor. And whilst he tends to end up in sort of rom-com wastelands for a bit, I feel he, he's kind of well cast for this. I really did like uh, Michael Douglas as Hank Pym. I thought Evangeline Lilly as Hope Van Dyne was a bit nothing, really. Mm. I, I wasn't very impressed with her, and I would say the same for Corey Stoll as Darren Cross, as the bad guy from the film. A lot of uh, Marvel films are very much about the superhero, not about the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, but I thought he was particularly forgettable as as a bad guy, even within these films. That's interesting, though. Do you think that it's a performance thing, or a writing thing, or a direction thing, or a combination of the three? Or is... Was it just yeah? Was it just a bad performance? I know. I, mean, I think he's he's a House of Cards alumni, mm. so he's a great actor, and I think that he did well with what he had. I think that it was probably in the writing, but I, do, I think it is an endemic problem with the Marvel films is that they don't have strong bad guys. You've got the breakout bad guy of of Loki from the uh, sort of the early films, but so many of the bad guys are very much forgettable because they're building continuity and they want these characters to sort of exist across several bad guys. Hmm. Very few of the bad guys can become regular or big characters. That's why you have like Hydra, which is the bad guy for a lot of these. It's The whole point of Hydra is that you can replace 
all the heads and there'll be st- Hydra will still be there. Yeah. And I think that gives them a lot of freedom to bring in people, bring people in and out. But I just do think it ruins a lot of the, the individual bad guys, leaving them with not a lot to do. And I think because it's dealing with such kind of mythic, sort of iconic characters, especially in Captain America and Iron Man, that when you've got someone that huge in the character, not many of their bad guys have entered the consciousness in the way other ones have. Like, everyone understands Batman Joker. Mm. And Joker is one of the few, and, and Loki, I'd say, has kind of entered that conscious. But I couldn't name you a Captain America bad guy. Mm. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't really name you many of like, an infamous Iron Man bad guy or Scarlet um, Witch bad guy or any of these things. Mm. They they don't have the iconic bad guys that uh, some people do, and I think it leaves them short sometimes. That being said, I think those are the two the two bum notes in this film. I really did enjoy Luis, as you said. I thought his little comedy moments really did lift the film. Mm. I very much enjoyed the whole scene at the end where he's telling the story of uh, of, of a story getting to him, and I thought that was very well done. Yes. Um, one going going back just quickly on this idea of of bad guys. Um, one thing that I thought this film did very well was um, the bad guys were partly the good guys from other films. So okay, you, you can say that the the ultimate bad guy is Hydra, and we, we all know that that's mm. that's a bad thing. But like there were secondary bad guys like. Falcon was presented as a bad guy. The Avengers in general were presented as bad guys in opposition to Ant-Man. Yes. Tony Stark was presented as a bad... Was that, is that supposed to be Stark's dad in the... Yes, yeah. that, was, that was Stark's dad. So in the, 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 Stark, the Stark family was presented as the antithesis to this, the, the freedom that, that Pym presented. Um, and I thought they did that really well. They made... Because, um, as you said, it's it's difficult to it can be difficult to characterise a bad guy in this universe. So it was it, that that was something successful they did, something interesting they did. They they put they pitted Ant Man against other ostensible good guys. I think that's a, from a sort of a filmic point of view and a, and a sort of a technical point of view. It's a very good idea because as these films roll on, the question must come up of why don't you just call the Avengers? Mm. You know, in a situation where you've got like Iron Man, he's in trouble with um, in the third Iron Man, he's in trouble with the Mandarin. Why doesn't he just call the Avengers? Yeah, and I think that that's a, a great kind of filmic technique or story technique, at least to kind of from from the start of the film, you know, they can't call the Avengers mm. because of as you say, because they set up Shield and the Avengers as some somewhat of the antagonist, the part of this. You then can't turn around and call them when you need them. Yes, yeah, and that well, that that's something you got on the 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 first time this is explained by Pin to Lang this this whole situation and Scott Lang's first response is is exactly that. Mm. So the, this film addresses that from the very start. This idea that, that you should call the Avengers. I think that there's a I mean all these things that there's a uh, a, a concern of what I'd call power creep. Uh, particularly in your good guys, that if they've beaten somebody in this film, well, that's something that puts a on bigger. Mm. And you end up having to kind of ratchet up the stakes every time. Uh, this is evident in the in the Die Hard series, something we talked about in the past, that, that started good and just got worse. 
because of that power creep. From the first film, he's a guy stumbling through air ducts with blood on his feet, barely surviving. And in the third one, he's driving a truck into a fudge jet. Yeah, that that's the fourth one. I I I will I, I'll I'll stand up for Die Hard Three. It's it's brilliant. Um, there there is creep, and he is he is driving a tanker through a through a pipe. Uh, it is faintly ridiculous, but it's also great fun. Was uh, um, the fifth one in Russia? Yes, the the fourth. That was terrible. The, the fifth one is the terrible one with his son. The fourth one is the terrible one where he throws a. a car at a helicopter the third one is with Jeremy Irons it's the last of the credible ones yes 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 I, I, I would agree to that one um, but I think that with the Avengers you've got to um, change it up I think like Captain America have you seen both Captain America Sam? I've seen the first one I haven't seen Winter Soldier in the first one, he's kind of fighting the Nazis. And it's very clear back on the second one, he's fighting kind of a conspiracy and a political intrigue kind of thing. And that was that was well done. They kind of changed that bad guy without him having to suddenly become a lot stronger and more powerful. Mm. He's fighting a different sort of bad guy. I think the Marvel films are doing well with that. I think this this was a criminal great example where he's, they're kind of fighting a very personal battle. Yeah. You know, the world isn't on the line in Ant-Man. It's the the big battle comes when he starts, his daughter's on the line, really. Mm. Um, it's uh, yeah, it's kind of it all ties into the larger mythos, but it isn't the world isn't on the line in the way it is in the Avengers. Mm. And I think that was well handled. Yeah, I thought it was, and it's something that you've talked about on this podcast before. But there are too many films nowadays where things are solved by hitting them hard, and in this one, you couldn't hit things hard. It was all about being being tricksy and being um, being cunning and and knowing when to be small and when to be big. Um, yes. And there were there were explosions and there were times where you hit things hard, but the part, part of the part of the way that, that Michael Douglas escapes the facility is just through knowing how something is going to work. And it's not necessarily through overpowering other people. It's just through manipulating laws of physics. It felt like it was about being smarter than the other guy, exactly. rather than being stronger. Yeah. And yes, as I said, there were there were fist fights, there were Thomas Tank Engine train crashes, but ultimately the, the day was won by being smarter and being willing to risk more mm. than the person you're fighting, which I certainly was as a nice change. Yeah. Yeah. This film got me thinking about a larger topic, though, of origin stories, mm-hmm. and filmic origin stories. Normally, superhero films are very concerned with origin stories. But I do think that there's a few things to be talked about about it. One of which, that this film felt unusual in that it wasn't the origin story of the superpower. A lot of superhero films are about how he got that power. Iron Man's about him building the suit. Captain America's about him undergoing the serum. Spider-Man's about him being bitten. At the start of this film the superpower already exists. Okay. But it is it is about him adopting that superpower. I, I agree, but also at the start of the... It, but the other thing that this film, it isn't about him accepting that mantle. Mm. He, he starts the film wanting to change and wanting to be a better man. Yeah. And he, yes, he has some ups and downs in that, but it was very unusual to me that this film isn't about A, him... It's about him becoming a superhero but it isn't about the development of that power. And it isn't about him stepping up to the plate. Yes. 
he's you know, he, he's always already willing to step to that plate. Yeah, but there's no. I mean, there's something we talked about with with flight a few weeks ago that there is a, a epiphany that the character works through by the end of the film, and the, mm. there's no there's no comparable scene in which Paul Rudd is an hat to his to to quote from the film itself, but. It, He's not unpleasant to other people ever, um, in no. the way that you got Denzel Washington bawling out his ex-wife and kid. Marvel has handled this sometimes well and badly. I mean, it is, it is noticeable that uh, it's a sort of common thread that I've seen Batman's parents die more times than I can think about. Mm. Every, every every Batman film at some point will feature that origin story, and if you look at the trailer for the upcoming Superman vs Batman film. Which is another reboot of Batman. We will, you see the trailer once again. We will see his parents die. Same with Spider-Man. We see that same story over and over again, despite the fact that the, that, that origin story exists entirely in 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 the in the culture of our of our society and subculture. That we all know how Spider-Man gets his powers. I I wonder why that. We talked about this before, and you've said that you've seen Batman's parents die hundreds of times. I agree with you; I have as well. But that doesn't annoy me in the same way that repeated spider repeated um, iterations of the Spider-Man origin story annoys me. I'm t- I just find that really tedious in a way that I don't find the Wayne killings tedious, and I wonder why that is. I would, I mean, just just as, as a personal theory, I think. It probably comes from the fact that it's a simpler origin story. Mm. But Batman, whilst I, I consider played to death, his parents are shot in an alleyway. That makes him want to make a better world. Is it, there's a Whereas, simple psychological motivation there that people can yeah. understand. And you can you can kind of play that out in one scene of, of a one shot of his parents being shot and him crying. Mm. Flash forward to him now. Whereas Spider-Man's much more about him being a science nerd getting bitten by a spider, his parents dying, him not saving his his um, Uncle Ben, who then tells him with great power and ability. And him dying which makes him come to food. It's much a much more protracted origin story. Yeah. Um, in a way that I don't think Batman's is. And I think as I mentioned earlier, Guardians is a great example of there really wasn't a lot of backstory. No. There is no origin story. It might be the origin of that team but with Drax the Destroyer, it's just like he's giant and he's grey, and you know he takes it literally. Uh, Rocket, uh, Rocket the Raccoon is just he's literally a raccoon who likes guns. Yeah. And there wasn't any, and that film almost felt it could do with more because it's so far out of our general world in the Marvel universe. But there was no attempt at an origin story. Yeah, yeah I, I I like that. I. Oh, the fact that those characters stepped into the frame, fully formed, and you had mm. um, whatever Chris Pratt's character is called, Star Lord, is it? Yeah. Yes. Um, and you had that scene with him at the beginning, and he was just he was he was already Indiana Jones in the twenty third century at the beginning of that mm. film. Um, I. I agree. I think they they handled that perfectly. Just kind of in one scene of him singing, dancing his way through a uh, th- through a, the ruins. Like that's his character. Yes. Yeah. And I think that there's 
often too much of a reliance on origin stories. Mm. I think one one I was thinking about this. One of the reasons for that could be this fixation on origins could be to do with the fact that, well, I suppose art and let's get um, get more esoteric about it. Life in general is about searching for meaning, and origin stories give meaning to later narratives. Mm. So an origin story is important. In, in film as it is in life because it it justifies what we do maybe I, yeah I, I, I need to take that a little bit further I think that as an audience we like origin stories because almost always the guy or girl at the start of the film is us mm. yes like I watch you know Gods Galaxy and it's awesome but I know that I'm not Star-Lord yeah you know, I'm 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 nowhere near Star Wars. It's a great ride, but I'm not that person. Whereas something like Spider Man, where he's just a geeky kid, as an audience member, we get we get a proxy and we get a step into that. Oh, I could be that guy. Mm. And it, that's why we get the love of the action of, of the origin story. Um, but I think that there is a risk in it. Certainly, I think moving away from superhero films for a little bit, horror films, especially sort of a lot of the the sort of eighties ones have had origin stories as later instalments in the franchise. Mm, yes. So for, I, I, I couldn't tell you the numbers because they're all the same, but you know, Friday the 13th, one of them is the prequel of how Friday the 13th started. Yes, yeah. And I think that origin stories as prequels are a very different beast and very frequently don't work. Also, and this will happen only once, so cherish it. Um, I I'm going to refer now to she's all that because <laughs> <laughs> because there is something about American high school films in the late nineties wherein it was the transformation of a a narrative proxy that drew you into the film. Um, there is something of an origin story about that. So the transformation of Lenny Boggs in She's All That has parallels with the transformations of people like Scott Lang, for example. Yeah, I, I, I think there's a a lot of high school films are about almost the, the, the secret face. Mm. You got the, the popular boy who isn't as bad as everyone thinks he is, and the unpopular girl who's cooler than everyone thinks she is. Yeah, and I think that. That narrative has certainly been played out across a lot of films. Um, and to bring it up again, Clueless is a great example where you open with these characters who seem very shallow and self-absorbed and living in their own little world, but that the film is about showing that behind it all, they are good people, and that you know the, the burnouts are, are, are as worthy as as the preppy kids. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that they say, they say origin stories kind of come in all shapes and forms. I'm I'm thinking about that origins as prequels idea, um, and mm. I wonder if that that takes you some to something like Star Wars, where you have the origins of characters that we already know, but it's slightly different because George Lucas had already planned the story. I don't know what you mean, Sam. There were only a few Star Wars films. <laughs> okay, let's leave it at that. <laughs> no, no. I, I think I think genuinely, I think that is a great great example. Of how the original Star Wars films were, were kind of they, they were they were God in the galaxy. They were like, here's the world, get involved. Mm, yes. 
And yeah. yes, there was a little bit of explaining what the force is and a little bit of here and there of, of a bit of exposition. But it was very much like, here's the world getting involved. Yeah. Whereas the prequels sought to explain everything. And I think they lost a lot of the magic of the original three films by trying to explain what the force was, how it all got there. You know, a throwaway line about the Clone Wars in the original films, which was like, oh, that's an interesting bit of world building. I wonder what that is. To them being shown the trade negotiations and political intrigue that led to them mm. was not as cool as me going, oh, I wonder what that is. Yeah. I think that there's a, 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 for want of a better word, a, a coolness in the mystique yes. that is ruined by some prequel uh, origin stories. In our, in our showing of Ant-Man last night, there was a boy who must have been 9 or 10, I mean, it's 12A, so he was there with his parents. Um, but he was not entirely up on cinema etiquette yet and mm. um, occasionally would comment quite loudly on what had just happened. Uh, um, and that is kind of how I feel about the first Star Wars films that it's a bit of a ten year old stating the obvious about something that's been alluded to as you say subtly in in the middle three films Mm. Um, and that was kind of cutely endearing a bit a couple of times then a bit annoying like six and a half hours of cinematic time that has ceased to become interesting and become very annoying I, I I would I would wholeheartedly agree, and I'm I do own all the prequels, and I do have a soft spot for the third prequel. I do think it was the best of a bad bunch, but it still wasn't good. Right, I, anyway, I have nothing to me... add to that because I saw the first one and deemed it so awful that I refused to watch the second and third. You really aren't missing much. There is just a digression moment. There's something called the machete cut, <laughs> which is is the, the is a, a viewing order basically where you watch. Star Wars 4, Star Wars 5, and the end of Star Wars 5, the reveal that Vader is Luke's dad. What? And at that, <laughs> and at that point, you go back and watch 2 and 3. You can lose one entirely, apparently. Watch 2 and 3 as like an extended flashback right. of how that happened, and then pick up 6. Okay. Um, Return of Jedi. Um, and that apparently makes it work a bit better. Right. Um. And oddly enough, as, as I'm telling stories, Topher Grace, if you know who that is. I have no idea. And by the way, if act- you're aiming to top your name drop from last week, Topher no, Grace the, the, is the, not the way to go about it. This is not a name drop. Okay. He was the main actor on That 70s Show. Right. Um, and he's done a few things since then. Um, and he, for some reason, I don't know why, because this is a thing I read online, he learned how to edit films. And doing so, he edited the original three prequels down to one film. Which focused on Hugh McGregor's character, Obi-Wan, and about his his story rather than anyone else's. Right. And apparently, that's a very good film. Okay. But it, 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 it took six hours, made it an hour and a half, and it worked. Oh, good. Anyway, yeah. digression aside. Shall we move on to a few recommendations? Go for it. Sam. I have, um, well... As ever, one obvious one, not so obvious. Um, my obvious one this week is just go back to Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and see how the visuals have changed in the intervening 26 years. Because 
got to have the sword that is that long since Honey I Shrunk the Kids, nineteen eighty nine. Um and there are some there are some interesting interesting moments in this towards the end when um Paul Rudd is running through carpet or when when Tom's tank engine becomes uh, a part of the action sequences that reminded me of of Honey I Shrunk the Kids. Um, the other one, Rob has mentioned already, actually, um, and I would urge people who haven't to go and watch House of Cards, in which um, the actor whose name escapes me, the Darren Cross actor, Peter Russo, what's the actor called? Yep. Uh, um, Core, I just had it in front of me. Give me a second. Uh, Corey Stoll. Right. Okay. Corey Stoll. Um, go go and watch House of Guards for Corey Stoll because he is, he, as as Rob said, he's quite stilted in this film, and this isn't a great advert for his acting talents, but he is very good in House of Guards, so I'd recommend that. Okay, I I once again I'm, I think I'm liking Sam's idea of a, of a of a common and uncommon one, so I'm gonna I'm gonna follow suit this okay. week. Okay. Uh, my common one, my well-known one, is going to be Men in Black. Right. Men in Black, the early Will Smith film uh, from, I'm not sure when that came out. Came out. I'd probably say late 90s. Uh, give me a second. I will, 1997 it came out. Uh, Men in Black starring Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. It's basically the origin story of Will Smith's character in Men in Black and how he went from being a New York cop to being a man in black. It's very funny, it's well done, it handles that perfect balance of here's a crazy world, but here's what you need to know. Mm. I would recommend it wholeheartedly. I think that Will Smith is as good as he ever gets in his kind of voice working role. Tommy Lee Jones is perfectly pitched as the world-weary deadpan that he does so well. Mm. I would recommend that. as The second one and third one weren't as good. I think they lost their way a little bit with the thing, but the first one certainly is 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 worth checking out. Mm. I particularly like the the first time you meet Will Smith in Men in Black, which has him racing a bus, and it's just very good. <laughs> I like it, that. It, uh, but I think also with that film, it does you don't see the origin of him being a very good cop. No, like you you drop right into the action of him as a great cop. Yeah. Hunting down an alien. Yeah. My second animation, which is a much less known well film, called All Superheroes Must Die. This is a film from 2011. Essentially, four superheroes wake up in an abandoned town that's been controlled by one of their arch nemesis and it's are forced to compete tasks to basically free local civilians and themselves. It is, there is no origin story at all. It's straight into the action of these four superheroes. And it's dark and it's messed up and it's very, very grim in places. It's well acted, it's well written, and it, it's worth checking out for how to introduce characters without any kind of protracted backstory. You've got four superheroes, Anis and a nemesis, who are all introduced very quickly, very simply, and then you're with them until the end. Okay. I think it's I think it's on Netflix. Um, if not, it used to be on Netflix. But it's worth checking out. Anybody called All Superheroes Must Die. Next week, I believe, is my choice. It and is. I'd like us to look at 
Um, another new film. We might we'll, we'll shy away from new films for now after this week. The last new film we're going to have a look at is a new one from Pixar Animation called Inside Out. Ah. So um, I believe you've you've had a look at this already, and I look forward to uh, seeing how good a film this is. I will keep my opinions to myself, then, and we shall talk next week. Great. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, then by all means do so. Uh, the generic account is at Prestige Podcast. Or you can find me at Rob Kaiju. Or me on Twitter at at Life underscore Academic. Awesome, guys. Thanks for listening, and we shall see you next week. Bye. Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.